everyone. Hope you're doing well. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 39. Um, for the kids, a couple of things. One is down in the back corner where Karen and Jeff are, is some sheets for you guys to do with some various activities and stuff on it, including is it a hieroglyphics puzzle for them to sort out that they can come in and uh, uh, we'll, we'll tell you what the answer is at the end of the service. But also, too, you'll notice in my PowerPoint slide, there is uh, a little colorful, very happy Joseph in his colored coat. There is multiple of these running through the PowerPoint slide. I don't know how many there are, uh, but Huey does, and I believe Richard does. So if you count them on your way through and go and tell them afterwards, uh, there, might, there might be something for you. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Come with me to Genesis 39. We are in a series that we're calling Sunday School Revisited. And the idea with this series that we'll probably pick up on at various stages in maybe the next few years, I don't, I don't know, there's lots of Sunday School stories, is that there's a bunch of stories that we remember from Sunday School days, but we thought, why well, isn't it good to go back to them as an adult and go, hey, what is sitting here in these stories that we often at Sunday school have a, have a nice little moral package that we put kind of with it, but there's something greater often that's going on in these stories, in the grand story that is going on in Scripture. And we particularly see this in the life of Joseph, which is why we decided to start off with a series with this particular person. If I said to you, who is the person in Scripture that was the, 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 the obvious example of someone who was prone to unjust suffering, who would you say? Jesus. If I said just the Old Testament, who would you say? Some of you said Joseph because you know where I'm going. Good work. If that slide wasn't up and I hadn't said anything, you would have said Job, right? We go to Job, and that's natural. You know, he had a fair bit taken off him in a very short kind of space of time. But I put to you, I think Joseph is up there in the same uh, category of someone who had a whole lot of things happen to them in their life that were beyond what they, in many ways, should have been able to cope with, certainly beyond what they deserved, if we put it in those ways. But Joseph is told in a very different way. And as we go through this chapter, I want you to keep in mind different audiences that this story is told to. The first audience is this one. Oh, you think about how the Bible stories come to us. But the first audience is this. It's Joseph's family. So Joseph's family, after 20 years, he's reunited with them. And, and once they've been reunited and forgiveness and reconciliation has taken place, one of the questions would be, what's happened in that period of time? So this story is actually, firstly, Joseph telling this story. He's telling it to his brothers, to his father, to his immediate group, and going, you, you know what was going on there and how you meant it for evil, you meant it for harm, you knew all that stuff, but I tell you, that God was at work doing something for good. So when we read here that God was with Joseph, which is a big point that we're going to make, initially it's Joseph going, this happened to me. It wasn't right, but I tell you what, 
God was with me. God was with me. The second audience is Moses would write this story down, the whole book of Genesis, a few hundred years later, and he'd write it to another audience. This audience was the group of Hebrews who were in slavery in Egypt. And they thought God had abandoned them and forgotten them while they were stuck in slavery in this land. And so here's a second group who's going, where is God and all that is going on? And part of the story that Moses says is, check this story out. What do you think was going through Joseph's mind when he sat in a pit sold by his siblings, when he sat in a prison for a crime that he never committed? What do you think was going, well, let me tell you what Joseph said. Joseph looked back on that story and said, ah, God was with me. Other authors pick it up through Scripture. We see it in Psalm 105. The psalmist there says, I want to tell you this grand story that is going on. And he includes the story of Joseph in there. Joseph talks about him being in prison, that his neck was in a chain, right? And his, his ankle was bruised but because he was in this prison. So other authors pick it up and use it in particular ways. Stephen mentions Joseph in his speech in Acts, right? And so the story is meant to be one seen in its initial setting, but is meant to come to us today for us to see what is going on, how God was working in the life of this young man. And so it's a very relevant story. And you'll see as we read it, and I'm very aware that it's a family show this morning, um, my wife was laughing that I got Genesis 39 uh, to do today. It's not all G and PG, but I'll try and keep it to that today, and you can fill in the gaps as you see fit. But you'll see as we go through the story here that the way that Joseph is treated in a particular way, but I want you to see how Joseph sees it and how God sees what is going on in the situation. So let's begin by reading uh, the start of Genesis 39 together. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of, the Egypt, of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now I want you to first notice the setting that we have here. Dick Lucas was a British uh, teacher, and he, uh, in a sermon noted, well, a sermon on this passage, he said, if, you, if I said to you, hey, there's a bookstore out here in the concourse today, and it's about great men and women of the Christian faith, 
He would say, your natural inclination would be to go, oh, it'll be about a missionary or a minister, right? Somebody involved in some great kind of Christian ministry. And we've been kind of trained in our thinking that that's what, there's this sacred secular kind of divide that goes on, right? But what's lovely in this is Joseph is a hero of our faith. And it never talks to him about in a spiritual community as such. Where is the setting where he's in? It's in his home. It's with his family. It's now in his place of work here in Potiphar's house. Nick's going to move to a prison. And then he's going to end up in a palace. These are places where he lives and places where he works. And so the first point is, is that m- the majority of Christian ministry happens in those environments. That's the the place where most of us spend most of our time, in our homes, with our families, in our workplaces. And so the place where we are called to demonstrate the character of God in our lives, in our Christian walk, starts there. We have to have a good theology of work. And you'll notice there that Joseph stands out, and when Joseph tells the story, he says, things went well in that sort of way and was noticed by Potiphar because God was with me. A key point that I'll come, keep coming back to is God was with Joseph because Joseph was with God. It's a reciprocal relationship. It said God was with Joseph, but, but God is with Joseph because Joseph is with God. Joseph sees God in his home, in his workplace, wherever he goes. He realizes that he is mixed a representative of God, that God is present and real in those spaces. And so Tim Keller points out three temptations that sit in this chapter. One is very obvious, which we'll come to in a moment, but he says the first one is actually an interesting temptation. And he talks about it as this temptation that sits in a place where you have privilege or responsibility of what you will do with that. And in our privileged environment that we live in Cambridge, New Zealand today, we're privileged on a global kind of scale, but we're very privileged in a historic kind of scale. What do we do with our privilege? There's a temptation there that always sits to use it for our own purposes. And yet Joseph sees here that he uses it for God. And when he uses it for God, his character shines through in the circumstances that he is in. We're going to see in a moment, Potiphar and his wife, neither of them who have this incredible privilege, use it well, use it well. By the way, the captain of the guard there, it, it sounds like a, a, you know, a nice kind of position, or you know, it says they're just Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's officials, captain of the guard. More than likely, he was probably head of the armed forces of Egypt. That's probably it. So Egypt was the leading nation in uh, those times, and Potiphar is the leading person in the armed forces that exist in those days. He was not just you know, one of Pharaoh's officials. He was an incredibly powerful and privileged person. We're thinking about it in our Sunday school kind of stories, and here's some of the pictures when I just put in, you know, Joseph in, uh, in Potiphar's kind of house, 
and you'll see a few different pictures there that are kind of thrown up that give us some imagery of what was kind of going on. I'll leave you to leave your imagination as to which one might even be anywhere near close of what was going on. There's uh, variations there of a very buff kind of Potiphar versus a sleepy Potiphar in a chair. But we all get these images that are put kind of in place there and we're meant to kind of read through in the story and picture in our own minds what is going with it. I want to just talk briefly as we come into this next section. Joseph is in this house. He's serving this man Potiphar. He's away from his family and his country. But in, in all respects of the circumstances that he's in, he's doing the right things. And then this, this temptation comes along that's going to be present here. And as I said, there's one already and there's a second one that we're going to look at. And I think what's, what's useful in this story is this story can be read in, in a very easy way for us in our modern society to be able to read and to understand that the temptations are present. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is well known um, as uh, somebody um, who stood up to the Nazi regime in, in Germany as a Christian and he's written a number of very good books. One of his shorter books that's not quite so well known was on temptation. And he wrote a great quote, which I'm going to read in, in full. It's a slightly longer quote, but I, ho I hope you see why I'm going to read it, because we can think of temptation in a very narrow kind of way, but I think his um, description is very helpful because it's vivid and broadens the way that we kind of think of it. This is what he said. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is inflamed. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is in the course of being extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but listen to this, but with forgetfulness of God. The flesh thus aroused envelops the mind and will of the man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Now put it there because I think that is a very apt description. Temptation in itself is not wrong, but temptation ta can take a hold. And it's at that moment where I have to choose between what I will listen to in that moment. What grips me and takes me. And so Joseph, it says, was, I don't know what your um, ones say, but in my one it says he was well-built and handsome, right? You can describe whatever in your own mind is that was. But he grabbed the attention of Potiphar's wife. Now, in um, Egyptian culture of those days, we can think of our sexualized culture as a very you know, new and recent kind of thing, but it is not. There's a story told, uh, one story in Egyptian culture of a king who wanted to find a wife, 
who would be faithful to him. So he looked around in uh, ones that he would know in the class of society, that he, and he, he could not find one who was faithful currently to the husband that she had. But eventually, he found one. So what did he do? He got her to divorce him, and ironically took her as his wife. Slight bit of irony there. I'll let that one sink in. What it shows, though, is here was a culture where promiscuity was both accepted and encouraged. Imagine living in a culture like that. Well, you don't have to imagine a lot, do you? We live in a world that bombards us with this idea that promiscuity is not only acceptable, it's to be encouraged. And fidelity is actually now an oddity. Isn't that interesting? And so Joseph comes into this culture, and by the way, he doesn't have a good family history of this either. <laughs> read the chapter before about Judah and Tamar. You can read that in your own time. His father had a few issues as well, right? So he's come from a family environment, and now he goes into a cultural environment where he knows the reality of this temptation is going to come. And I don't know where you're at, or the reality of this temptation is for you at the moment, but it is going to come. And the question is, in your imagination, what will you do when that takes place? And I put to you that Joseph had thought about this. That Joseph had thought about this. And it says here that Potiphar's wife, day after day after day after day, pressurized him. And in so many ways, it would have been easier for him to succumb to it for two reasons. One is because I think the temptation was real. There's nowhere in here where he goes, ah, oh, no, not really interested, right? We don't get that in the story. There's no indication there that this temptation wasn't a real one. But it also would have been in some ways safer because he knew that there was trouble in resisting Potiphar's wife. Although potentially there was issues with that if she chose at some point in time that he was no longer flavor of the month and would be stringent. So in his mind, he's going that this exists as a possibility. So what I want to do is we know the story. I want you to listen to what Joseph says in his response to her. He says, but he refused. This is the first time, by the way. He says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So the first thing I think is that that's not some random speech that just fell into his head. I would suggest to you that his imagination had prepared that speech ready for him to go. 
Because imagination is where temptation kind of starts and, and progresses, isn't it? Imagine for you, you, you saw an advertisement for a particular new car that you wanted. What do you start doing in your mind? Right? So some of you, this is meaningless. For some of you, this is like bang on, right? And so what do you, you start imagining driving it, and you picture yourself all over the place, and how it will feel as you kind of drive. And then imagination turns to the reality where all of a sudden you're sitting behind that wheel and driving that car. And then suddenly you're behind in your payments for that car, right? Where does it all start? It starts with our imagination of what is going on and we play out scenarios. And what I'm saying to you is for Joseph, he played this scenario out. But Joseph's response to this is based in this idea of not some internal feelings that I follow, some sort of set of desires that I have to work out and in, in our modern kind of expressive individualism out, out they play. In him it was, I stand before God. I live in the presence of God. I live at any moment with God. I'm in Potiphar's house because God directed it that way. And I'm living for Potiphar to help him flourish. How could I do that to Potiphar? But if I did that to Potiphar, it's actually sinning ultimately against God. And so in his mind, there's this external set of facts which override his internal drive of inappropriate desiring feelings. And so he's able to say no. And this is really important because willpower against strong temptation doesn't work. You may think you have the most wonderful willpower in the world and you've been able to resist, but there will be a moment and an opportunity where your willpower will not be enough. And this is why this external operating principle has to be in play. It has to sit there with it. And Joseph is just a supreme example of this that speaks powerfully still to us today. Well, um, they say heaven has no rage like love turned to hatred. Uh, it was said by a guy called William Consgrove. And what happens is this scorned wife then comes up with this story that we hear about, don't we? And first of all, she tells the story to the servants. So she gets all the servants on her side with the story that is told. And then she turns this story and she tells it to her husband, Potiphar. And this is what she says. Then she told him this story. Notice what she says. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. You see, this desire that she had, which was scorned, now turns into hatred where she wanted to use him for her own purposes. And now that he won't return that, she is quite happy to get rid of him. 
It says there, when his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he what? Burned with anger. So his anger took over and took control of him. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, a number of, of uh, uh, commentators have noted that the right sentence for Joseph in this instance should have been death. So they note, why is it that Potiphar in this instance only, in that sense, puts him in prison? There's probably a sense that he knew his wife and he knew Joseph. And he probably knew that there was a sense of injustice that was present here with it. But he had to live with his wife and Joseph was dispensable in this instance. So he's put in prison. I don't know what you imagine an Egyptian prison to be like. Um, archaeologists tell us that, that most cultures never had prisons. They never referred to, to prison. It was that they, you had an immediate sort of punishment um, or, you, you know, in, in a way to come back kind of into society or completely kicked out. This idea of holding people in a prison place um, for a period of time. But they note that Egypt did. In fact, they had a particular prison uh, that was about 400 miles uh, out of the main city, and it's quite possible that that is where Joseph went. As I said, the psalmist says he had something around his neck and something around his ankle, so he was shackled at least for periods of time with it. It's not uh, some sense with a modern prison that we have there, and so we have this image that sits here in his mind. For Joseph, though, the, the point is this, is to be sent into an Egyptian prison there wasn't a sentence period. It's not like he got 10 years or something or other. He's in prison with no sense of what might happen going forward into the future. Perhaps he could be pulled out. Perhaps he could be put to death. It's completely and utterly unknown with it. And so we come, in a sense, there to the third temptation that sits with us. And this temptation would have a number of names with it. Despair might be one with them. Disappointment might be another one with it. I mean, we look at the story and we go, of all the people that God you should reward for having a moment of integrity, surely it's Joseph. Why would, why would you not reward him? In fact, just the opposite. He's now in a, in a, in a prison, either there for life or potentially for death, with no hope that sits there with it. And this is one of the big differences between the story of Job and the story of Joseph. Job is chapter after chapter of the friends coming and critiquing it and feelings and thoughts and reflections and they're good for us to kind of work their way through. But Joseph doesn't dwell in that place. He's not, he's not feelingless, right? We'll see in the next, next week, in the next chapter, he goes to one of the fellow prisoners, when you get out, would you remember me, right? So he wants to be out of there. Don't, don't, don't get this idea that he is cold and emotionless. But, but he wants to just tell you the fact of the story and then tell you a theological reflection of what is going on with it. So let's see what it says. It's not many verses. It says this. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness 
and granted them favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Do you see the similarities between what happens in prison and what happens in Potiphar's house? Joseph's not worried about the circumstances, he's worried about what he is like, his character in a particular situation. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. I was chatting to someone at a party once who was a, uh, who was a teacher and had been a teacher for a number of years. And in the course of a conversation, uh, he told me that he had taught in Decile 1 and Decile 10 schools. Decile 1 is a lower socioeconomic situation and Decile 10 is a higher situation. So I asked him the question, what did you notice the difference um, between the students in, uh, in uh, the different schools is? And uh, he had a, a number of comments, but one in uh, particular stood out. Was He said, well, when I taught in the Decile 10 classrooms, he said, I was the least gifted person in the classroom. Everybody else in the class, according to their parents, was special. And if you're special, what do you need to have? Special treatment. He said it was very interesting. And when I made another uh, comments about this old one and the differences that he noted and saw in it, what if we live in a society where everyone says, you're special? And our flesh loves to hear that too, isn't it? We're special. What flows from that? Well, I should have special treatment, shouldn't I? From who? From the people around me? From God? These are hard questions for us to ask. And they're important things for us to reflect and to think about. And the story of Joseph forces us into that space. Because as I self-reflect, I realize it's not hard to be like the special person demanding special treatment. And we don't see that here with Joseph. We see here with Joseph that there's this large degree of acceptance of what will happen to him in his life. Whether it's what's viewed by the world as success or viewed by the world as failure, world by, viewed by our view of what justice should be or viewed by the world of what injustice should be. And I'm not saying we shouldn't care about justice. It's just he seems to be saying that if you are on the end of it, there's a particular thing that you have to have consideration in how you're responding to that. Because we can spend a lot of time going, wow, why me? Why me? Why this? And we want the special treatment where my ideas and my problems should take center stage with it. And the story of Joseph, so beautifully crafted and told in such a short space, says, you know what? There's a bit of a counter here that says, it's about time you realize you live in the presence of God who is active and at work and maybe, maybe what you are going through is part of his plan for you or maybe for other people. 
And so there's this important thing, I think, that says for us, for us to reflect and think of is that we're not to live in the situation of our circumstances and all the things that that can bring upon us, but we'll rather to dwell in the presence of our loving God and to realize that he is, in fact, at all moments, living with us. This is a very well-known verse, isn't it? Of Paul saying something very similar to us. He says, and we know that in all things, God works. Some of your translations will say, in all things, all things work, or whatever it says. All things don't work. God works through the things that are going on. For what? For the good. Of what? Of who? Those who love him. Don't miss that line. My call, your call, is to live and dwell in the presence of God and love him. How do I do that? It's very practical. I love him by obeying him. Obeying him whatever circumstance I am in, whatever circumstance I am called to. For those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Joseph knew there was a greater purpose for his life. You have no less purpose than yours. You might not know exactly what it is, but there's no less purpose with it. God has a plan for you. Your side of it is to love him. We talked last week about this idea that Joseph is a type of Christ. That is so many elements of Joseph's story is then reflected in the life of Christ. And one of them, what we can pick up from today, is that Christ was innocent, and yet he took the punishment. And as we go into communion, I just want to read this famous passage from Romans 5, which I think brings a, a bunch of things together and helps us to focus in our stage on this side of the cross about how we can think about these things. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our what? Sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, I love this phrase, at what? At just the right time. God's timing. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the communion table, we're reminded in the story of Joseph as we see an innocent person unjustly put into prison. But through the process of being put into prison, you were working out a plan for the salvation of many, in that instance through famine and drought and the provision of food. But it points us to Christ, who was innocent, condemned to die for our 
spiritual famine and drought and death. So that through his death, his sacrificial death, that we might live. Father, would you help us as we reflect on the story of Joseph today? Would you help us to understand even more deeply how much we live in your presence? You with us, us with you. As we take the bread and the juice this morning, may we reflect and be reminded of this. In the beautiful name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.